0: Young
1: and I'm Sam Tracy
0: and you're listening to this week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of students for Sensible Drug Policy.
1: An awesome organization working to end the war on drugs.
0: Every week on this week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy.
1: And hopefully have some fun while we're at it.
0: We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human
1: rights. This is not only our 58th episode, but also the launch of our third season. Thanks to the great successes of our Kickstarter, which raised over $1,000, we're putting in our all and really hoping to make this our best season yet. This episode will start off with our weekly news and forecast, then it's followed by an incredibly exciting discussion. As our guest, we have Johan Hari, drug journalist, author of Chasing the Scream, and giver of TED Talks. Since we're launching mid-month, we won't have a drug of the month for August, but we'll be starting back with that segment in September. So as always, thanks for joining us for episode 58 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, which is really exciting because now that it's our season three premiere, we finally have Rochelle back. And so we're very excited to have the team back together. Hooray. So Rochelle, I guess since it's your first time back on the show for a few weeks, do you want to start things off with our first story?
0: Yeah, for sure, Sam. Um, So the first story of this week is unfortunately kind of a bummer. Um, I'm actually not entirely sure if you guys covered a couple weeks ago the um Drug free Americas new this is your brain on drugs uh, drug mm-hmm. education program. Uh, But this is another, what looks like an ineffective uh, drug education program, this time aimed at young people. So this new program is developed by the US Customs and Border Patrol in Arizona. And it's a two hour long presentation that they've been giving to schools um, in the area, especially border communities along the Mexican-American border. And it includes a video of cartel members beating up a young teenager um, in a long drawn out and really violent sequence where um, the teenager in the video, you know, is begging for mercy and pleading for them to stop. And they keep having him, um, mm. the cartel members in this video, having him stand up and like beating him with a baseball bat. And all of this is part of a um, what they call Operation Detour. It's supposed to be a, a quote unquote education program to deter uh Teenagers in the area from getting involved with uh, drug cartels Um, many Mm -hmm. of them are u.s. Citizens Who live part-time in Mexico with their families and attend school in the u.s. And so there are a lot of um, Opportunities unfortunately for them to be approached by cross-border Drug dealers Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is trying to deter them from participating a lawyer for the human rights watch called the two-hour presentation including the video perverse Um, and I generally agree I don't think this is a very good way uh, to prevent their involvement and in many cases it completely misses the point that they are being extorted to participate um, in in these in these cross-border dealings like they're they're not Mm -hmm. doing it by choice
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially talking about young people who are typically, you know, not going to be the kingpins or anything. They're going to be people who are essentially serving as mules or otherwise uh, very low ranking folks within the within the hierarchy there. And, and this is really disturbing, too. I, I haven't seen the, the video, but it I've, I've read the descriptions of them. And showing this to young students really doesn't make too much sense um, because it. On the one hand, of course, we do want young people or anyone who is, say, considering getting into the, the drug trade to know about the risks involved. But on the other hand, a lot of these risks are also created by police. Like, I wonder what the, if they were showing any videos of a police raid, on, like a no knock raid on somebody and saying, hey, this could happen to you if we even think that you're involved and we'll probably shoot your dog and and throw your family on the floor and not really give you any sort of due process, but it, it's really terrible to have this sort of scared straight mentality when while there are a lot of harms coming from the black market, there's also a lot coming from police enforcing uh, the law as well.
0: Yeah, and it seems like a lot of this presentation relied heavily on um, like the cruel and unusual common knowledge of like potential mm-hmm. sexual assault in prison. Like I hate that That's something that law enforcement relies on as, mm -hmm. like, a threat. You know, it's like, oh, if you get caught, you're going to go to jail. And, like, as a young person, you're probably going to end up as someone else's, you know, rape victim in Mm -hmm. prison. And that's why you should stay out of the drug trade. Like, that shouldn't be a factor at all, Um, you know, and... Protecting people while they're in prison from sexual assault is a whole other discussion Mm -hmm. But it's just like very disturbing that this is part of trying to Educate young people about the risks of Mm -hmm. becoming involved in the drug trade And a drug trade that that you know we have rent as as you know the United States have rendered more violent In countries that in many cases these these kids um, have fled from because of that violence
1: Mm Mm-hmm And this is particularly disturbing looking at this now as saying that it's been given to more than 6,000 middle school students. Like this isn't even high school seniors or something who are about to get out of school and they're, you know, 17 or 18. And then they're saying, hey, you're going to be approached about these different quote-unquote opportunities in the drug trade or something these are middle schoolers that they're showing this to which is a whole nother level just because they're obviously so much younger and more impressionable and able to be scared about this sort of thing but they're also not even the target audience for uh for most of these groups and so it is kind of absurd to try to just instill them with so much fear early on in order to prevent some questionable thing down the road And so for our second story this week uh, is a very different one. And this is that a study out of Finland, which was published last week in the Internal Medicine Journal of the American Medical Association, has found that the further someone has to walk to obtain cigarettes, the more likely they are to quit smoking. So this study took data from two gigantic surveys, one with about 53,000 respondents and the other with 12,000. And they tied these survey answers, which was a smoking cessation survey, both of them, (laughs) to the respondents' home addresses and then calculated the distance from those addresses to various outlets where cigarettes can be bought. And so they compared all of this data and found that among the baseline smokers, people who smoked at the beginning of the study, a 500 meter increase in distance from home to the nearest tobacco outlet was associated with a 16% increase in odds of quitting smoking. And so this is really interesting because it does make a certain amount of intuitive sense that the more inconvenient it is to get cigarettes, whether you have to go farther uh, or they cost more or what have you, uh, that's one more factor weighing in the decision on whether to quit. Uh, and one external thing that maybe actually helps you quit if you've decided to, um, but then it, it's kind of out of your way to go to one of these outlets rather than you deciding to quit, but then being having it thrown in your face all the time.
0: It also... Um This, I mean, this does make a lot of sense to me, I feel like the more inconvenient a habit is, the less likely people are to engage in it. Um, Mm -hmm. This also makes me wonder about the efficacy of, you know, on campuses, sometimes they have designated smoking areas, or now an increasing Mm -hmm. number of campuses don't allow uh, smoking tobacco anywhere on campus, and whether that would lead to an increased number of people quitting, like if they have to walk farther away to use the Mm -hmm. cigarettes, Mm -hmm. um, not just to obtain them but to actually smoke, whether that decreases the likelihood that someone is going to smoke you know, as regularly or in between classes if they really have to go out of their way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they actually did have the designated spots that were actually enforced, um, then and having people go to those areas. I think that that does uh, seem to really fly with the the results of this study, that that would have an impact. Uh, it is also really interesting looking at this from... Uh, it kind of is telling that it's a Finland study because they're talking about these distances from people's home and that they have to walk farther. Uh, well, I don't know if this could really apply too much to America re- rather than maybe outside of the densest cities where people don't have cars. But um, maybe a five, you know, 500 meter increase if you're uh, driving is going to be substantially less. And uh, so. Uh, It would be interesting to see this adapted for a much less urban area um, where the maybe the inconvenience of walking twice as far is significantly more than the inconvenience of driving twice as far. Uh,
0: That makes sense. I hadn't thought of that.
1: And one other really interesting thing there, too, is that the study actually didn't find any relationship between the distance to a tobacco outlet and people avoiding relapse. So after they quit, uh, they ended up not having any better chances at staying quit. Uh, versus quitting in the first place Um, and so I'm not sure exactly why this is the researchers said that there might be more factors to relapse like you know socially being around other smokers who might just offer you tobacco Um, but yeah I'm not sure and and it's also interesting to think about what this means for policy and how we should regulate tobacco too.
0: Yeah, for example, some um, medical marijuana laws we've seen here in the United States uh, limits the number of stores that can be present in a certain geographic area. So I wonder Mm -hmm. if, um, you know, you could translate the decrease in um, tobacco use because of the distance to Mm -hmm. stores um, to the same thing with cannabis use um, and if that will help... um, uh, mitigate the potential for for more addictive behavior in cannabis
1: users. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we should regulate tobacco like marijuana. <laughs>
0: um, so moving on to our next story. Uh, so last year, in response to the increasing opiate and opioid abuse. Um, that we've seen across the country and reported on extensively. Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey signed a law that requires colleges in that state uh, that do have substantial residential populations to dedicate specific housing for substance abuse recovery programs by August 2019. So the College of New Jersey took initiative and created that dedicated housing uh, immediately last year. Uh, for students in drug and alcohol recovery. But unfortunately, only one single person signed up for those dorms. Due to the very weak response, uh, the college has taken the time to reassess why there was such little interest in participating in the program when up to 4% of their students uh, self-identified as being in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. So I'm sure people who are more familiar with um, drug recovery and uh, addiction um, or abuse recovery programs know that uh, you can't just, I mean, it's, it's a really difficult thing, first of all, for people to, you know, come out and say, oh, I am in recovery. There's still so much stigma surrounding that. And to isolate all that, all of those people who are trying to recover together in designated housing, that's basically, that basically tells the outside world, That they are struggling with this very personal and deep challenge Um, is probably not the most welcoming or um, like easy way to 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 um, connect with those populations. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, because this I mean, it does seem to be so well-intentioned in terms of, oh, we have these students who are struggling with with drug abuse and addiction. And so let's provide them a a space in order to support each other. Um, And and when you put it that way, it sounds like a really good idea. But then when you realize that, okay, so we have this one building on campus that's designated as the recovery dorm and we're going to be totally stigma free about it. And it'll be exactly the same as all the other dorms, aside from opting in. But then if a student, you know, meets another student in class and is like, oh, where do you live on campus? And then they by identifying where they live, they're essentially outing themselves as someone who's in recovery, which on one hand, it's nice to reduce stigma. And if people want to out themselves and share their story, that's great. But a lot of people don't. And so if you're trying to be private, uh, then joining this sort of very very public sort of organization and residential uh, situation is definitely not going to be something appealing to you. Um, And so... I, I can definitely understand why a lot of students uh, didn't end up signing up, even if they might have been helped in certain ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the program and those running the housing, uh, you know, completely intended it for, for it to be judgment free. And it doesn't seem like they're they're employing, you know, the same scared state tactics that we talked about. Um, but that doesn't help with judgment or stigma from outside the housing or from Mm -hmm. outside the program, which a lot of students, like you said, would be concerned with their peers knowing about. Mm. Um, So there is another college in New Jersey that has had uh, a substance abuse recovery housing since 1988. And I think it's one of the oh, Rutgers wow. campuses. So mm-hmm. um, the College of New Jersey is taking a little lesson from Rutgers and learning how to better integrate, you know, uh, substance recovery programs into everyday mm-hmm. Um, activities rather than just having this designated housing and nothing else to support those communities mm-hmm. um, so now they're also offering substance free activity nights with games and sports like that um, and substance free social groups that you know any student can participate in if they want to remain sober or mm-hmm. if they just want to have a sober night out with friends um, and that way, that, that encourages the normalization of being substance free. So you don't have to mm-hmm. se- uh, self-identify as someone who is um, like in recovery. You can just be mm-hmm. someone who has never struggled with a substance abuse um, problem and still want to be in that environment and share a substance free yeah. night with friends. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that really does seem to be the much better approach. I know at UConn, where I went to undergrad, we didn't have any sort of recovery dorm, but there was one that was a a dry dorm. It was generally a wet campus. And so people who wanted to avoid alcohol um, and in that sort of situation, you can opt in whether you're in recovery or not, uh, whether you've ever drank or not. And that sort of more broad, broad appeal sort of environment does seem to be a much better approach and much more supportive for the people who are in recovery. But then moving on down to our final story for the week is that this past Tuesday, the Ninth Circuit Court, uh, which is an appeals court, which includes California and is the largest circuit court in the country, ruled that Congress's ban on the Department of Justice spending money enforcing federal marijuana laws against businesses complying with their own state laws indeed actually does exactly that. So. Well, the language of this spending amendment that we've talked about before on the podcast, it it bars uh, the DOJ from spending any money on these things. Uh, The the amendment is quite clear, uh, but prosecutors were resisting it anyway and fighting efforts from people with ongoing trials to have their cases thrown out. Uh, The Ninth Circuit Court actually unanimously agreed that those people should not be tried for federal crimes, that the prosecutors were not allowed to use federal resources to do so, and then sent their cases back to the lower courts to determine whether they were in compliance with the state laws and judge them solely on those terms. And so this is really important uh, just because it's finally uh, the spending amendments, amendments that we've been talking about for a while are, are having a real world impact. There's, here are people who would have been charged with federal crimes who are now being essentially waived of that and just being judged in the aspect of state law. Um, so this is this is a pretty big deal. Uh, what do you think about this, Rochelle?
0: Um, yeah, so the DOJ had been arguing since... So this is the Rohrbacher Far Amendment, if you've heard of us talk about mm-hmm. that previously. And the DOJ had been arguing that it only prevents states from implementing uh, their own cannabis programs. Um, so what their argument had been previously is that they were only prevented from using their... Um, from spending any money to prevent states from like state action, either through mm. drafting regulations or passing legislation to create legal marijuana programs, um, mm. and even <laughs> if the the DOJ's interpretation had been correct, I mean it would have been kind of stupid if they if it only prevented uh, DOJ from interfering with state action, mm-hmm. um, but then allowed them to go after businesses that were then licensed legally through those state programs that they couldn't stop from being implemented right (laughs) um so even their interpretation was a little counterintuitive so i'm glad that the ninth circuit made that clear um Mm -hmm. and as i know that many people have pointed out there is a risk and i mean i think the court made the same point too Um, there is the risk that Because this is a budget amendment, it only lasts until the end of this fiscal year. So DOJ can always come back after having not spent that money this year. If the amendment doesn't pass again next year, they can still come back and prosecute cases from previous years that they weren't allowed to spend money on um, when that amendment uh, was in the budget. So this is kind of... that's the
1: really crazy thing that I, I just hadn't even thought about that before i I remember talking about in in the other debates about yeah we have to renew this every year so it's very important to move this into actual statutes rather than being a spending thing but the the kind of retroactive situation is that uh much higher risk than than simply letting it uh, lapse uh, just because it does open that up and make all of them ineffective. Right.
0: I mean, a lot of cases take multiple years to build mm -hmm. up the evidence anyway, so DOJ could just sit on those cases rather than prosecuting Mm -hmm. them and having them struck down in years where this is part of the part of the budget they can just sit on those cases and wait until you know Mm -hmm. one year maybe we have a less marijuana friendly congress and that budget item uh lapses and they can just bring all their cases Mm -hmm. that one year
1: yeah and spend all of their resources on marijuana enforcement
0: (laughs) Um, and also,
1: I guess so. The solution here is really we have to turn this into statute, or at least renew this long enough that the statute of limitations runs out for those early cases. I don't know exactly what that is for marijuana trafficking. It's probably quite some time.
0: Yeah, but hopefully, hopefully, this becomes such mm-hmm. a, a an obvious, um, you know, budget item that they just uh, make it into statute.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so with that, uh, time to move on down to our quick hit headlines. Rochelle, do you want to start us off with our first one?
0: So last week, Maryland's Medical Cannabis Commission announced the 15 growers and 15 processors who have won stage one licenses to grow and process medical cannabis in the free state. This announcement was a long time coming with um, about... Eight months after the commission's initial anticipated timeline, so a lot of people have been looking out for it for a while. Licensees are spread out throughout the state's rural areas, but notably don't include any growers in Montgomery County, which is the state's most populous county, and borders D.C. to the north.
1: And North Dakota's Secretary of State has certified that the North Dakota Compassionate Care Act gathered enough signatures to make it onto the ballot for this November. This brings the total number of medical marijuana ballot initiatives up to four, including similar initiatives to legalize in Florida and Arkansas, and then a fourth initiative just to fix the program in Montana, which did first legalize in 2004.
0: In international news, a poll this week in New Zealand found a whopping 79% support for medical cannabis and up to 64% support to either legalize or decriminalize personal use. The poll was commissioned by the New Zealand Drug Foundation, whose executive director Ross Bell was a guest on our show last season. So hopefully we can have Ross back um, to talk about whether Kiwis are going to see legal marijuana in their near future.
1: And finally, the drug war launched by Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte continues to intensify. The death toll has reached at least 693, according to the Philippine Daily Inquirer's ongoing count.
0: And we're going to have our friend Oliver on our show in upcoming episodes to talk a little bit more about uh, the Philippines and what's going on there. So moving on to our weekly forecast. Next Saturday, August 27th, the Minority Cannabis Business Association, in collaboration with Marley Natural, will be hosting the first ever Cannabis Expungement Day in Portland. So the Rise Up Expungement Day event will consist of... Uh, Assistance for qualifying participants who are over the age of 18 and have marijuana related convictions in the state of Oregon to complete all steps necessary to expunge their records, including covering all associated costs and fees. And this event is cost free to participants. Again, this event is sponsored by the Minority Cannabis Business Association and Marley Natural, the official cannabis brand of Bob Marley's estate, and will be held next Saturday, August 27th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Village Ballroom in Portland, Oregon. And we'll have a link to register for that event up on our website.
1: Awesome. And also this week, the California State Senate will consider a major asset forfeiture reform bill that was just passed by the state assembly, which is California's lower house, uh, this past week. The bill would require police to obtain a conviction before seizing property, Would also bar local and state police from participating in federal forfeiture programs that don't follow those same rules. So if the Senate passes it and Governor Brown signs it, that'll be a huge victory for California reformers and reformers across the country. So if you are a California resident or just really care about this issue, please encourage your state senators to pass this important bill when it's considered this week.
0: And that's all for our weekly news and forecast for this first episode of our third season. As always, there's so much going on that um, we don't always catch everything, but even though we have our eyes out for all this news. So if you see anything that you'd love to hear on our show, please send us a message, um, on Facebook or Twitter or email us at thisweekindrugs at And we'll make sure, uh, to include it in our show next week.
1: it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about some of the biggest issues facing us today. And for today's episode, the launch of our third season, we're going to be speaking with Johan Hari about his book, Chasing the Scream, which is a deep examination of addiction that challenges a lot of common knowledge on the subject. So Johan, thank you so much for coming on, especially since you're joining us from the UK and it is much later over there than it is here.
2: I also had to apologize to your listeners. This is literally an exclusive for you that this is the first time I've ever done an interview while being anaesthetised. I uh, had to have a, <laughs> I had to have a dental operation earlier, and um, I've still got a slightly numb mouth. And I hope not a numb brain. But if I sound a bit weird, I promise you, I'm not drunk. I'm not, <laughs> you know. And, and anyway, chemically, well, I am chemically altered, but not not anything prohibited.
0: Let's say that. Mm-hmm. It just it just contributes to your British accent.
1: <laughs> exactly,
2: <laughs> better, even more alien and remote i once went
1: to, much more charming when i was researching
2: the book i went into a i remember i went into a diner in in cactus arizona which i recommend everyone go to uh, and um and i said to the woman oh hi could i could i have some pancakes please and she looked at me she said what and I said, could, I, could i have some pancakes please and she said what are you saying and she kept asking me and after a while she looked at me she said do you speak english no
3: <laughs>
2: Madam, my people invented it. You <laughs> didn't smile. At you all. don't she speak. Was completely, completely unabused by my witticisms. <laughs> it's tragic. Mm-hmm.
0: So, just to start things off, um, g- getting back to the topic of today's discussion in, rather than pancakes. <laughs> um,
1: Which we can also include. Right.
2: Fiction is a. Do not deny that. They're almost a drug.
0: They itch too, sh- sugar. One of my chins is
2: due to <laughs> panic addiction, so don't, don't dismiss it so casually.
0: <laughs> well, you said you were in Arizona as part of the research for your book. Um, so just to rewind real quick, what inspired you to write the book? And um, why did you decide to make it rather than kind of a research-based endeavor um, make it into a, a much more personal project that involves a lot more human experience with drugs and addiction.
2: Um, well, I wrote it for a quite personal reason. One of my, one of my earliest memories is of, um, is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and, and not being able to, and I didn't understand why then, because I was a very young kid, but as I got older, I realized that we had addiction in my family. And um, mm-hmm. when I started work on the book, which was about five years ago now, um, I knew we were coming up to 100 years since drugs had first been banned in the US and Britain. Mm-hmm. And it's slightly arrogantly, well, not slightly, very arrogantly, when I started writing about it, I kind of thought, oh, this is going to be an easy thing to write about. I know loads about it. I'd written about it as a journalist. I'd um, obviously lived through it with my family. And I, and I kind of realised when I sat down, I wrote a list of questions I wanted, I was curious about, right? Like, why did we go to war against drugs 100 years ago? Why are we carrying on when it seems to be failing so disastrously? Um, what really causes drug use and drug addiction and what are the actual alternatives to what we've been doing in practice. And when I sat down, to write, I kind of realised I don't know the answers to any of these things. And what I wanted to do was um, really both look at the best um, social science and the best evidence, but really to sit with people whose lives have been changed by the war on drugs and by the alternatives to the war on drugs all over the world. So I ended up sitting, meeting with like a crazy mixture of people from a transgender mm. crack dealer in Brooklyn to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel to oh the my. only country that's decriminalised all drugs. You know, a, a real range of, uh, of people. And I think that the main thing I realised is that almost everything we think we know about this subject is wrong. Drugs aren't what we think they are addiction isn't what we think it is, the drug war isn't what we think it is, and the alternatives to the drug war aren't what we think they are.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that does make a lot of sense in that having that personal tie-in to addiction, which is just so common all over the world. And I know many other reformers, myself included, get involved in this sort of thing because of our lives being touched by drugs in some certain way and trying to figure out some answers for that. And, And so I was also curious what your thoughts on addiction were before starting this book. Um, so I know that you were always a reformer. You had done a lot of writing about drug policy. Before this book, it wasn't your first endeavor into the into the worlds of drugs and drug policy. Uh, but you did mention in your introduction to it that you sometimes struggled with basically the, the internalized propaganda of the drug war in terms of kind of buying into those thoughts about shame and uh, maybe coercion actually being the solution to the, these people being uh, you know, out of control if if you're suffering from addiction. Um, and so what, what exactly was your your thought process uh, or, or kind of your starting point before diving into this this very this three year project?
2: That's a really good question, because there are some things that I learned a lot more detail about, but that I knew about in advance. So, for example, mm-hmm. the way that drug prohibition causes catastrophic violence is killing hundreds of thousands of people. It has killed hundreds of thousands of people in Colombia and Mexico and, you know, the way it causes gang violence across mm. the US, across Britain, across Europe. I learned a lot more detail about that. I learned a lot more human stories about that. But I knew that before I started, right? I could have, I could have told you the essentials of that. The stuff about addiction really changed how I thought about it. So at the start, I'd, I would just, I'd slightly disagree with the way you you, you asked it, though. I understand why. I don't think, I don't think it's just propaganda. If we're really honest, I think one of the reasons why the debate about addiction is so charged is because if we're really honest, it runs through the hearts of all of us, right? there is no one who loves an addict who doesn't look at them sometimes and think i wish someone would just stop you i wish someone would just make you stop doing this this destructive thing right that is such a human and anger is part of that if you if you love someone and they are uh, destroying themselves or, or you know that that there's a, there's a, anger is a, it's a natural and human part of that and i don't think we should we should um you know uh disregard that or, or disrespect that as an authentic response but I guess mm-hmm. the, the the main thing I I learned and there's so many things about addiction that I learned but one of them is that I had actually fundamentally misunderstood what addiction was even though I'd, I'd seen it play out in front of me so if you had said to me five years ago what causes let's say heroin addiction I would have looked at you like you were really stupid and <laughs> all the clues in the name right it 's called heroin addiction there 's a reason for that we 've been told this story about addiction uh, that 's become part of our common sense we 've been told it for a hundred years now and it 's basically uh, that addiction is caused by chemical hooks within the drug itself, so we think if we captured the next twenty people to walk past your you know your apartment in boston um, or, or or in, in Colorado um, where you guys are, if we just captured them and we were like a sore villain and we we you know forcibly injected them with heroin every day for a month. At the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason, that their bodies would desperately crave the heroin. They would have this, this physical need for the heroin. And that's what addiction is. I, think, I don't think I would have put it quite as crudely as that, but I think basically that's what I thought, uh, say, heroin addiction was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: When I started going and meeting lots of people, um, one of the places that really had an incredible effect on my life was uh, going to the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is a um, really notorious part of... Of um Vancouver it has the highest concentration of addicts, possibly in the world, certainly in north america um and one of the things that led to me' about saying not right about with what I 've been told is when Gabor mate I suspect a lot of your listeners will know his work wonderful, humane, beautiful doctor in in but now retired on the downtown east side. he explained to me in Canada or britain if you if you guys were in Canada or Britain now. And you finish this recording and you step out into the street and you get hit by a truck, which would be a terrible loss to drug policy reform. Don't let that happen. Um, <laughs> if that happened um, and you were taken to hospital, you'd be you'd be and you say you broke your hip. You'd be given loads of a drug called diamorphine for the pain. Right. Diamorphine is heroin. It's the medical name for heroin. It's much better heroin than you're going to score on the street because obviously it's completely medically pure. Um, you'd be given that heroin for quite long periods of time in hospital. Anyone listening to this has got a a British or Canadian grandmother who had a hip replacement operation. Your grandmother's taken lots of heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by the chemical hooks, what should happen to all these people being given heroin in hospital? A really significant proportion of them should be leaving hospital as addicts, right? This has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens. And when I learned that, it seemed so weird and so contrary to everything i'd ever been told about addiction i, I to be honest i didn't believe it and, uh, when gabor first told it to me and and then of course i looked at the science and i realized oh this is the science that is unimpeachably robust and i thought well, what, what is going on here and it was only again in the downtown side that i really became clear to me i went and met an amazing man who you guys should have as a guest i'll give you his contact details A professor bruce alexander um mm. he's one of the best people i've ever met he's an amazing man and um he explained he conducted this experiment that I think really helps us to think about this. And then I looked at loads of different places that have um, acted on this insight in different ways. But uh, Bruce explained to me that this, this this theory we have about chemical hooks comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can do them at home tonight. If they feel a bit sadistic, you, you get a rat, you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. Um, one is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat almost always prefers the drugged water, and almost always kills itself quite quickly within a week. Right, so there you go. Uh, you probably, you, you guys look a bit too young to remember. So if you remember the famous advert in the 1980s, the Partnership for Drug-Free America advert, will some of your listeners will remember this, where they showed this experiment and they were like, showed the dead rat, and they're like, "It will happen to you." Or something. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. yeah.
0: And for for our listeners who do want to look up this experiment and read about it more, it's often referred to as the rat park experiment
2: exactly um, that first bit is not wrapped part the neck what came okay head?
1: the alternative so which
0: the, was what mm-hmm. bruce did
2: exactly so in the okay. 70s bruce came along and for various reasons was thought this didn't seem to fit with what he was seeing in the addiction on the downturning side. so he decided to design this experiment so, um, he built a cage because he, he looked at the, those first experiments and he was like hang on a minute you put this rat in an empty cage alone where it's got nothing mm-hmm. to do except use these drugs what would happen if we did this differently So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? Mm -hmm. They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of tunnels. They've got loads of colored balls. Anything a rat wants in life, it's got there. It can have sex all the time, whatever, right? It's that Mm -hmm. paradise, right? And they've got both the water bottles, the the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They both, Of course, they try both because they don't know what's in them. They hardly ever use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. There was not a single overdose there in Rat Park. So you go from almost 100% overdose when their lives are shitty and they're isolated to almost none when their lives are good. And there's loads of human implications, so loads of things come from that. But that, 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 mm-hmm. that, I think, really was the thing that then opened up the other stuff that I could then learn.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting and in something that we definitely have talked about on the show before in terms of the the Rat Park experiment and the idea that it's so much more reliant on these environmental factors rather than simply the drug itself. And I know in your in your journey, um, as your website put it, three year, thirty thousand mile journey into the war on drugs. Uh, you went around and interviewed a, a wide range of people, um, including, as you were saying, drug users, drug dealers, um, in addition to to researchers and people a bit more, a few more steps removed. And so, with that kind of mindset of looking at the Focusing on the environment rather than the drug itself, is that something that you feel uh, was really borne out by, say, the, the addicts that you talked to or people who had overcome addiction? Were, when you looked at the environments that they were in, was it pretty much lined it in, lined up perfectly in terms of all the addicts were in pretty terrible conditions aside from the drug itself or that uh, people who were able to overcome it, it wasn't really about the drug. It was a lot more about changing other things in their lives
2: i think it's true but i would i think you're right but terrible conditions doesn't necessarily mean poverty and i think that's really important to understand so sometimes um uh so for example two people who were very nice about my book and i'm not giving anything away by revealing that they had addiction problems uh were uh, russell brand and elton john right now they were not poor when they were actually russell was at the start but elton john was certainly not poor when he had an addiction problem he was one of the richest people in the world Mm-hmm. But he was profoundly disconnected. You know, uh, one of the things I've said that's got a lot of traction in the book is, you know, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And if you're, mm-hmm. you know, um, is, well elton john would be an extreme example but i mean if you're that famous you can't even walk the street right without but, I mean, mm. that's that's a really extreme i mean D- different bored, kind of
1: isolation yeah, yeah. you
2: can't trust anyone and you can't you know so you're much closer to that isolated k i mean obviously elton has built a life where he can trust people now but you know the, the early in his fame, had addiction problem uh, he, he, he he couldn't and you know sometimes people say to me well this can't be right what about wall street bankers they've got high addiction levels and i'm like well, you think Wall Street bankers are a model of like people who have <laughs> connected, meaningful lives where they yes. want to be present? <laughs> That's the perfect illustration of the principle of Bradbott. But to mm. me, the most interesting place that, uh, places that I went to were the places that actually built drug policies around this. One of the things that um, Professor Alexander says a lot is, you know, we, we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery and that has real value. But we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something's gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but primarily as a group, right? Mm-hmm. And for every person who's developing an addiction problem, there's another person who's chronically depressed, another person who's very anxious, a whole range of problems that are manifesting themselves. And to me, the most fascinating thing was not speaking to individuals who who had heroically managed to change in difficult circumstances, although there were some like that. Um, it was much more places that actually adopted a radically different approach. So I'll give you a good example, Portugal. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of incredible. And every year, it's an extraordinary figure, isn't it? And every year they tried the American way more. They arrested more people, they imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they decided to do something really radical, someone no one had done since the start of the war on drugs. They sat together and they said, shall we ask some scientists to like, look at the evidence? And they <laughs> set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know, Dr. Khoa Gulao. Uh, uh, by the way, I should warn everyone that I cannot say Portuguese <laughs> name. Whenever I was in, when I, the whole time I was in Portugal, they'd say, I'd say, what's your name? And he'd go, Khoa Gulao. And i go, Khoa And he'd go, no. <laughs> it's, it's like all those kind of Muppet
1: sketch, but anyway, I think hopefully we don't
0: have too many Portuguese listeners who will be offended. <laughs> if
1: there are, but they're going to be like, get some emails. <laughs>
0: that's not his name, but anyway, the
2: um and and and, and so the, this the, they said the the Prime Minister leader the opposition said to this panel, "Go away, look at the best evidence, figure out what would genuinely solve this, because we can't go on with ever more people becoming." Heroin and come back, and we've agreed in advance we'll do whatever you recommend. So really bold, right? So it just took it out of politics. Um, so the panel goes away, they look at the best evidence, including the evidence from Rat Park and lots of other things, uh, loads of other things I talk about in Chasing the Scream, and they came back and they said decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis mm-hmm. to crack, everything. And to, but, and this is the crucial next step: take all the money we currently spend on. People's lives up on um, imprisoning them, arresting them. Can I swear? I just realized that I. Is that okay? Great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
1: we can bleep it out if we have to put it on the radio. <laughs>
2: I saw a live radio recently. Um, yeah, take all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up, uh, on imprisoning them, arresting them, making their lives worse, and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And it's not really what we think of as rehab in the US and Britain. There was some uh, psychological treatment that does have some value. But the biggest thing they did was just set up a huge program of microloans so addicts could set up and run small businesses about things they believed in and a huge program of subsidized jobs. So say you used to be a mechanic. They go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to say to every person with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, We're on your side. We want you back. And obviously I went there and spent some time there to see the results. And it was by the time I went, it was 13 years since they had started doing this. It's Mm -hmm. now 15 years. And the, the results were in the most detailed scientific study of this published in the British Journal of Criminology found that injecting drug use has fallen by 50%, 5-0%. hasn't happened next door Mm -hmm. in Spain. hasn't happened in any other European country. Massive fall in overdose deaths, massive fall in street crime. One of the ways you know it works so well is that virtually nobody in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed a man called Juan Figueroa, which I'm also saying wrong. He was the the top drug cop in Portugal at the time of the decriminalisation. And Mm. he led the opposition to the decriminalisation. And he said what lots of people say, you know, surely if we decriminalise all drugs, we'll have all sorts of catastrophes. And when I went to see him, he said, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything oh, wow. the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he would spent 20 years prior to the decriminalisation, arresting and imprisoning people. And he hoped the whole world followed Portugal's example. I think he thought I was a bit crazy because I got really emotional. After like, mm-hmm. going to, like, Ciudad Juarez and going to, like, the, you know, going up with a chain mm-hmm. gang of women in Arizona who are made to wear T-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public jeer at them to no. go to all these horrific places. And, then going, mm-hmm. and to, if I'm really honest, I actually put off going to the places that are the alternatives, Portugal, Switzerland, Uruguay, uh, Colorado and Washington, because I kind of thought, God, well, what if they don't work? You know, what? what this is going to be the most depressing journey ever. But it's extraordinary mm-hmm. to see how radical uh, how radical the shift in public opinion was. It's very hard to find anyone in Portugal who, who will criticise what's happened. There are people who think it doesn't go far enough.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But it was really striking how this extraordinary, you know, they have five political parties, it's a competitive political system. None of them want to go back.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a
2: really striking thing.
0: So, at the onset of our conversation, you said that, you know, this this journey and the research for your book uh, challenged a lot of your preconceptions about many different things, including addiction, um, you know, the war on drugs, as well as alternatives to prohibition. So I'm kind of curious specifically about that last one, like, what do you mean it challenged your preconceptions about what alternatives to prohibition could be? Do you mean what you touched on a little bit in Portugal, where it wasn't just you know like how do we deal with the drug use but rather how can we care for these humans and let them know that we love them and support them i mean like what other what other challenges did you see to that um, because i mean that's just a huge focus of our show is drug policy reform right and we always talk about uh decriminalization primarily as the alternative to prohibition that we're fighting for but i'd love to hear from your perspective like Is there something we're missing? Is there another piece?
2: I think there is. Um, And I was missing it too, so this is no no reproach. Mm -hmm,
0: Yeah.
2: One of the best ways to explain it is through one of the most amazing people I got to know There's a woman, actually, you should definitely interview her. Remind me, I'll give you her details. Um, She's the former president of Switzerland. Her name's Ruth Dreyfus. She was the first female president of Switzerland and the first Jewish president Mm -hmm. of Switzerland, both of which are big deals. Because I'm a a Swiss citizen because my dad's from there, and it's a super reactionary country. I mean, my grandmother got the vote in, like, 1973, right? This is not (laughs) something And what Ruth did in coalition, and as she would stress, very much working with civil society in Switzerland, was, I think, something incredible. And it really helped me to think, about what we need to be advocating, particularly in relation to, remind me to say this in a minute, but the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation. So Switzerland had this huge um, drug problem in the 80s and 90s. uh, And the AIDS crisis was a real, when Ruth Ruth was initially the health minister and then became the president, um, which was a real spur for them to start thinking about this. Um, and they tried lots of different things that didn't work. They tried a particularly bad kind of decriminalisation where they just herded all the drug addicts into a few parks and just said, "Well, you can, we won't arrest you if you use in these parks." Which of course, mm-hmm. of those parks became just like dystopian scenes, and you know, it's just it's a really, that's not a good that's not a good way of doing it. Um, mm-hmm. And and but what I thought was fascinating was the politics of how. So as I say, Switzerland is super reactionary. The American And there isn't an exact American analogy, but if there was one, it would be Utah would be the closest to the politics of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And they voted to legalize heroin. And the way they did it and why they did it, I think, is really fascinating. So Ruth explained to people, when you hear the phrase legalization, what you picture is like anarchy. You picture a free for all. What we Mm -hmm. have with prohibition is anarchy and a free for all. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown users, all in the dark, filled with violence disease and chaos legalization could be the way of restoring order to this chaos is how she sold it it's a very swiss idea the idea you know it's not about liberty it's not about um even it's not even about compassion i mean that Mm -hmm. she is a very compassionate person but that wasn't really how they sold it it was about order and the restoration of order to anarchy
0: it's about Uh, their clocks ticking on time.
2: exactly Want those? Cl- you know that it's literally a crime in Switzerland if you live in an apartment block to flush your toilet after ten pm. No, it's a criminal <laughs> offence for which people actually phone the police. No. This is how. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, we should legalize toilet flushing. Very
0: flooding. tightly wound. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. But
0: that's
2: another <laughs> like kind of, Well done. Like that. Um. The and what was fascinating, so the way they did it. Um. Again, because you know. Um.
0: It wasn't about compassion. It was about restoring order. Yeah.
2: And of course, if you think about legalization, when people hear about legalization, they often they think of the only model of legalization they've seen, which is, you know, I don't know, something like alcohol. i try to explain mm-hmm. to people. I don't know the rules in um, it, 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 where you are, but I'm pretty sure in most parts of the US, it's legal to own a dog, a monkey, and a lion, right? But it's legal in different ways, right? You can just go into a store and buy mm-hmm. a dog. Most places to buy a monkey, there's probably like hoops you have to go through not literally the monkey does that and then yeah.
0: like,
2: and then like to buy a lion i'm sure even in the most libertarian parts of the united states they come and like check you're not a psycho and they you know you can't just have a lion in your yard right, right. Um, mm-hmm. so in the same way what ruth was ruth was not proposing the legalization of heroin on the model that we have successfully legalized um you know cat marijuana where you are and mm-hmm. um, what uh, In Colorado, what, what, what she was proposing was, and I went to the clinics to see how it works. So what happens is you're assigned to a clinic. If you've got an addiction problem, you're assigned to a clinic. You go to that clinic. It looks like a kind of fancy hairdressers. You go, you go in the morning. You're, you're given your heroin there. You can't take it out with you. You have to use it there. Uh, and then you leave, and you go to your job because they get, they give you loads of help to get a job, they make sure you've got housing. And one of the things that really surprised me and I found quite challenging about this programme that was really interesting is you can stay on that programme as long as you want. There is never any pressure to cut back. And yet, in practice, almost everyone chooses slowly over time to reduce their dose and eventually stop. There's no one... The programme began uh, 12 years ago, and there's no one still on the programme from the beginning. There's some people who want it to oh, wow. recently. Um, mm-hmm. And... And, and I said to Rita Mangi, who's the, the the psychiatrist who runs the, the Geneva Clinic where I spent some time, why is that? Why do they all cut back? Because, it cut, again, it cuts against the idea that, the, you know, the chemical hooks take you over. And she said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the exact words in the book, but she said, well, their lives get better. And as their lives get better, they want to be present in their lives more. Mm-hmm. and so of course you know the women who've been prostituting themselves stop men who've been committing property crime stop and one of the so anyway switzerland then had a referendum on this um on whether to keep heroin legal after it had been in place for a few years and it won by 70 percent huge oh, wow 70 percent of people voted to keep 70 percent yeah
0: mm-hmm.
2: and again it wasn't really because of the compassion although there was some compassion did enter the debate it was much more just people could see the results like crime mm-hmm. massively fell There were you didn't have that, you know, parks were not full of people with addiction problems. Violence fell. So to me that was that was really fascinating. And I think it goes to one of the things about the difference between decriminalisation and legalization. I've been trying to think of a kind of populist way to explain it. I think the closest I've got is um, so decriminalisation is obviously where you stop punishing users, but they still have to go to armed criminal gangs to get their drug. Legalisation is where you open up some legal route to them getting their drug. So decriminalisation shuts down Orange is the New Black, and legalisation shuts down Breaking Bad, is how I how I think of it. And um, and to can me, can you by...
0: can you elaborate on that? <laughs> what do you mean?
2: Well, the 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 so what's great about the Portuguese model. Is you're not punishing drug users anymore so all the senseless punishment of drug users and addicts and i would stress that the vast majority of drug users are not addicts obviously mm-hmm. uh, sure. and they acknowledge that very clearly in the portuguese system if they find you with drugs and you're not an addict they just give you health advice and if they find you with drugs and you are an addict they just say well we can get you help today if you want it if you don't want it that's up to you but we can get you help today mm-hmm. um uh but so so Portugal shuts down all of that, but it doesn 't shut down what for me is the biggest moral issue of the drug war, which is obviously what what we do to addicts is very close to my heart and is something I care about passionately and I think is monstrous. but I think it's something' that's even more monstrous than that, which is the violence caused by prohibition you know i 've covered some really awful places in my work. i 've been to covered the war in the Congo and the central african republic i 've been to iraq but and you know, the occupied Palestinian territories, I've never seen anything like I saw in Ciudad Juarez and, and what's happened and subsequently in, in, mm-hmm. in uh, meeting people in Colombia. The, the You know, it's worth bearing in mind, by, by some estimates, more people have died in the drug war violence in Mexico and Colombia than have died in the Syrian civil war. And you compare how much we talk wow. rightly about what's happening in Syria, mm-hmm. and how, which, frankly, I, there may not be that much we can do about other than take in the refugees which we absolutely should you compare that to mexico and Colombia. we could end the violence tomorrow right that's that's violence caused by us we impose that violence um it, it's caught co- and it's not caused by our drug users and addicts it's caused by the system of prohibition itself I'm happy to talk about why if you want and how but but um so that to me is a really um that's the biggest moral issue that is dealt with by switzerland and colorado mm-hmm. Washington, sure. and uruguay and it's not dealt with by um by decriminalization that leaves all that stuff in place which is not to say that so, it's not a really important advance of course it is
0: so i'm really fascinated so basically what you're saying is that in portugal even though there's a more care and compassionate approach to uh treating the addict it doesn't address the supply side and the illicit market that that generates all this violence what's really interesting to me is that um in all of these examples, Switzerland, Portugal, the overwhelming consensus is that these programs have been successful. Um, like you said, you reiterated over and over that in Portugal, everyone is in, nobody wants to go back to a, a criminalization. So why is it that it's taking so long for these ideas to spread to other countries? Like, As someone who lives in the United States, I grew up in Canada, You know, it's a large country out here. So, uh, they're very large countries, so it makes sense that I think ideas take longer to shift. Um, but from a perspective of a North American, it seems like Europe is a lot closer and um, more tied to each other. If you see one country's approach or policy is working, what is stopping other countries from Experimenting in the same way, applying the Portuguese model to their own um, policies.
2: There's two things there. I just want you to say something about this supply-demand thing. I actually don't think that's the right way of framing, it, although I totally understand why you do, and lots of people do. Okay. Lots of well-meaning people do because sometimes what you get is you get a kind of thing where they go, well, you know, people will say, well-meaning people on our side will say, well, the way to do. Deal- with is to reduce demand here by treating addicts and being nice to them um, and of course all the things we're talking about in terms of compassionate approaches obviously but problem, problem is not supply right uh, the problem is prohibition in the same um, uh, you know the problem in Chicago in 1927 that was causing Al Capone was not that people wanted alcohol or that someone was willing to supply it mm. neither of those things mm. have gone away what was promised the system of prohibition and it's an incredible graph. Um, another guy you guys should talk to actually, <laughs> I'll give you a list of these people. With, uh, <laughs> if you haven't already, Jeffrey Myron, who's a professor. at um,
0: Oh yeah. In Harvard. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. love have, mm-hmm. you, have you interviewed him?
0: We haven't, Not but, yet. um, we've read his research extensively as two people yeah. in the marijuana world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's
1: mm-hmm. amazing... got it on my shelf right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love
0: his, he's, he is
2: he, he an amazing book. He wanted, um, graph in one of his books about, um, just the, the If you look at the just the murder rate in the United States in the 20th century, it mm. massively spikes up when alcohol is prohibited. It massively spikes down when alcohol... Like, the day alcohol prohibition ends, it massively mm-hmm. spikes down. It really tells you something. And I really learned about this a lot from... I spent some time with a, a guy who had been a, a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel who's uh, now in prison in Tyler County in, in Texas. Um, between the ages... Rosalio Retta, his name is, between the ages of... 13 and 17, he butchered or beheaded about 70 people. And um, that that insane violence, to know that we could end that is, and we're not, and we get nothing in return for it, right? We don't gain anything for all that violence. Is to me devastating, and I think of all the People that I got to know, the, the actually him and and the family of um, a, a woman, in Ciudad Juarez, who did something incredible. Um, it's kind of a long story, but she she did something extraordinary, and I tell her story in the book, and 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 died as a result. And I think about all those stories, and I think we really have a moral obligation to end to stop killing all these people and they're dying in the most barbaric ways Mm -hmm. Um, and we can end that right one of the things so anyway so to go back to your your second thing which is about um the second part of your question or rather your actual question (laughs) i just (laughs) ranted on about for ages um the reason why firstly i can understand what it looks like from the outside but unfortunately the european drug debate is a catastrophe and actually people in France know nothing about Portugal and people in people in Spain don't even know about Portugal. Oh, wow. It's incredible how they, actually what I would say about the U S debate is the U S has a catastrophic and disgusting and evil drug war and a really inspiring and brilliant movement to resist it. Um, in Europe, some parts of Europe like France, um, we have an almost as evil drug war and virtually no fucking movement to resist it at all. Uh, mm-hmm. The French debate is unimaginably terrible. I mean, the French debate makes you know the U.S. drug debate look like Plato and Socrates. It's it's unbelievable. <laughs> um, so, the, but the main reason why I think you've so it's very interesting to me going to these places where there's been this transformation and thinking, well, why are things better? So I think about Vancouver. There was an uprising led by homeless street addicts that completely transformed canadian drug policy Mm -hmm. and this guy the most amazing person think i've ever met bruce uh, bud osborne who was a homeless street addict who started that i'm happy to talk about the story of that if you like but the 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 thing they all had in common was actually something really simple and it's what you're doing and it's and it's what your listeners are doing they're the places that have movements to demand change it's as simple as that Mm -hmm. Uh, why is colorado why was colorado the first state along with washington It's because there were six guys in Colorado, uh, Clean Mason Tavert, you probably know, um, and Steve Fox, and those other guys who just Mm. started, right? They started when everyone thought they were crazy and they started organizing and they did it step by step and they appealed to their fellow citizens and they prevailed, right? Mm -hmm. The basis that it's not to say that every movement succeeds, of course, some face bigger challenges than others, but um, it really was. Now, there was one exception to that, which was Uruguay. Um, and I think it's an exception that shows a limitation uh, in an interesting way. So Switzerland, Portugal, Colorado, Washington had movements, grassroots movements, and Vancouver had grassroots movements of citizens demanding change, demanding something better. Mm-hmm. And they prevailed. In Uruguay, something different happened. And he's another incredible person that I interviewed. Um, I, I'm not someone who just gushes about people. I'm just, and for this particular mm-hmm. book, I did actually meet some amazing people. Um, mm-hmm. Jose Mojica... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the former president of Uruguay at the time that I interviewed him, the president, his story is like a kind of fairy tale, right? So he's mm-hmm. grows up in the slums of Uruguay in Montevideo. He, um, he, when they have a dictatorship, he's part of the Tupamaro guerrilla movement mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. resists the dictatorship. Um, my favorite fact about them is that they named, um, they named as their honorary leader, miss marple the agatha christie character the little <laughs> old who's the detective because they thought she was the embodiment of justice i love that <laughs> that's adorable it's like a marxist guerrilla group that names miss marple <laughs> anyway um and anyway Mahika is captured along with the other two guerrillas and they put him at the bottom of a well for three mm-hmm. years right for um, three years yeah wow. he eventually the detective falls he's rescued from the well he goes to live in a shack He becomes president. He continues to live in his shack. I went to the shack, and before I went, I thought, oh, this is like propaganda. It's an actual shack. Like, Mm -hmm. the British Prime Minister would not keep her shoes in the place where (laughs) Mojica lived as president, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating is, so, obviously, Mojica made these tremendous sacrifices for his country's democracy, and he was very conscious that supply routes for the drug trade move around the whole time. You know, it's called the balloon effect, right? You push down in one place... It pops up mm-hmm. in another. You never get less drug supply, but it does move around. Um, and he was conscious if, if the supply routes start to go through Uruguay, if there's a crackdown against Mexico, already they go through Paraguay, which is only next door, Mexico would be, uh, um, um, Uruguay would be absolutely screwed. Because if Colombia and Mexico, which are rich, big countries, can't defend themselves, good luck to Uruguay, which is a small mm-hmm. poor country. I mean, they're they, they mm-hmm. Um So he was like, well, we've got to legalise now to prevent that from happening. We've got to get out in front of that. And he really got out massively in front of public opinion. About 70% of people were against him. About 25% were in favour. And basically it just meant it got massively bogged down. It faces a huge amount of scepticism. It's huge to his Mm. credit that he did it. I admire it. He's right. I would urge leaders to do it, even ahead of public opinion. But actually, one of the things I I think I already thought this broadly, but it would help me to apply for drug policy. You've got to persuade ordinary people first. It's about Mm. that that change, trying to just capture it at the top and do it there, it doesn't really work. And I mm-hmm. think, the, and it's interesting, one of, the, one of the things I found is everywhere we had succeeded, it's actually the conservative small C conservative arguments that win over the waverers, right? So when we talk rightly, and this, we should keep talking about this and it's essential that we keep talking about this, but when we talk about compassion for addicts or liberty for drug users, both of which are things I very strongly believe in, that gins up our side. That's an important thing to do. It doesn't win over many people who don't already agree with us. The conservative arguments do win over people who don't agree with us. One of the, one of the people I wrote mm-hmm. in my book is Lee Maddox, who was a cop in Baltimore, key figure in law enforcement against prohibition, who, mm-hmm. um, which is an extraordinary and incredibly important group, who um, was a kind of hardline prohibitionist cop in Baltimore, has this extraordinary story of stuff that happens to her and comes out against the drug war and is now... At, you know, just an incredible force for, for ending the the, the the drug war and I think of all the people I got to know if I could sit any ordinary American down with anyone I met to persuade them I would sit them down with Lee right I would mm-hmm. take a, a former cop or a sitting cop and I would say you know because she could say I was you right if you're a prohibitionist you're like, I was you I said all these mm-hmm. things I'd bust people for years for having a single joint and let me tell you what happened to you what happened to me and and what I learned and what I saw. And I think um, those conservative arguments about restoring order, about saying it's not... uh, Tonya Winchester, who led the um, uh, Washington legalisation campaign, had this interesting thing she would say to people when she was out canvassing ahead of the referendum. She would say to people, I'm not asking whether you like marijuana. I don't like marijuana. I don't smoke marijuana. I don't use marijuana. I don't want to use marijuana. That's not what this is about. Um, this is about: should we empower criminal gangs? Should we ruin people's lives? All of the all the things that you, you, your listeners know very well. And I think that's a really important reframing. You know, um, it's not to say that we should be you know opposing people who who are in favor of drug use. Of course, we shouldn't. I, you know, the, I'm, I'm on their side, but but I, do, I don't think that's the way we should be approaching the general public.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that is so important, as you're saying the and we've talked about Uruguay a lot on the podcast too in, in terms of that kind of top-down approach, while in certain senses we we might want it to happen, that these politicians who are in power just do it. Um, unfortunately, especially when you're living in a democracy, um, a bottom-up approach is really necessary, especially for as far as implementation like you were talking about, um, but then also just for having some staying power to that. Because if, say, uh, one president forces it through and, and then gets uh, – replaced then who knows what the next president's going to do and so as far as that um kind of grassroots education side of things goes unfortunately uh we do have to wrap up in a second but i do i am really curious to to hear how um this kind of went but you launched your book with with a really huge tour you had uh interviews on all these major news outlets you did a ted talk you did a lot of you know very uh mainstream media appearances and maybe people who uh aren't necessarily reformers, aren't necessarily on our side, but are watched by millions of people. Um, So obviously, we're a little late to the party as far as a book tour goes, but this gives us a really nice benefit of being able to kind of talk about the tour itself. And I was curious how you felt your book was received by by mainstream media, and if there were, you know, the reporters that you talked to, if they were better or worse educated about addiction than you'd expected, and just what were your thoughts there as far as, how this information get gets filtered out in and the media's relationship to um to drug policy reform
2: i was really moved by it because um the thing that was most moving to me is how many people said your book changed my mind because
3: mm-hmm.
2: the, i was conscious as i wrote it that you know the reality of books like this is that mostly we talk to the the choir basically. Mm-hmm. And there's a value for that, like telling people who already agree with you more stuff. That's hugely valuable. But the one thing that's really really surprised me is how many people I don't quite know why, but how many people who really didn't agree read the book and and you know were receptive to the arguments. And I found that of all the experiences, I found that the most the most moving. Um and you know, it was very striking. One of the things that they kept saying to me, TV producers, was Who can we get to be the other side, right? Who can we get Mm -hmm. to be the prohibitionist side? And Mm -hmm. what's extraordinary to me is there ain't that many people who will even publicly defend the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Like, the the only people who will do it are either people who who work in the drug war industry or like absolutely Mm -hmm. crazy. People, right? Just not to say I don't think everyone who believes in the drug war is crazy. I'm not saying that, but I mean, who will actually go out in public and make a, you know, try to make a sequential case for it rather than a kind of hazy sense that there's no better way? Um, so it was really interesting. I didn't get, um, I got very little, uh, very very little resistance. It was really surprising. Um, what, what kind of, what can I say about that? The, I mean, it was fascinating seeing in different countries the kind of uh reaction
0: i mean it's it's interesting to hear that there hasn't been a whole lot of very forceful pushback from, or that you know you got you you had a generally positive reception um but that at the same time you know, as we've discussed, policies aren't changing as quickly as we'd like them to. So really what that tells us as a movement is that we're fighting inertia. We're just fighting the status quo. Like, people don't have, or it seems, people don't have a very strong argument in favour of continuing the war on drugs, but they're just unpersuaded yet that we need to change what we've been doing for so long, because that's just what we're used to, because we can't envision other other ways.
2: I think it's more than that. I think that's a really interesting way of putting it, because it makes me think it's actually slightly, I put it slightly differently. I think it's that people know that what we're doing has failed, but they they don't know what the alternative would be or could be. Mm. And they generally think the alternative is just saying, oh, well, hey, anyone who wants to eat, let's just give crack to everyone who wants it, you know, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think yeah. actually it's that people have this extreme caricature of the insofar as they know that there are alternatives, they have a kind of rather crude caricature of what the alternative would be and when you talk people through what the actual alternatives have been like in practice and what the results are um people people re, that was interesting, people get really fun. when i th- when I was planning out like how to talk about the book, I thought the stuff that people want to hear about would be you know people did want to hear about this to to a happy extent but like the book opens with the story of how Billie Holiday was stalked and killed by the founder of the war on drugs, which is a story that's not been fully told before. Right. I thought, wow, that's a sexy story. People are going to want to hear that. One thing that really, I found incredibly inspiring actually was how many people were like, yeah, that's a good story, but tell me about how it works with legalizing heroin. What does it mean? Right. Mm -hmm. And they really want to know the actual details of things like that. And I found that incredibly heartening that Mm -hmm. uh, people are so hungry for different ways of thinking about this for, actual stories and proof about the alternatives um
0: like a how-to guide like people just don't know how to
2: exactly and people can really sense that what we've done has been a catastrophe like i i, I literally never came across someone about one crazy republican congressman i was on Al Jazeera with he's the only one so far who basically said what we're doing is good. He actually mm-hmm. thought it all gone wrong under Obama. And I'm like, really? You thought the whole war on drugs was perfect oh until God. like <laughs> 2008, did you? Right. Okay. Well, that's 2009. Um, but, 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 um, yeah, I, I mean, I've got, got a little bit of resistance from um, people who um, are very wedded to a disease based notion of addiction. So people who sometimes when you talk about the environmental factors about addiction. So basically, we've been stuck for 100 years in this polarity, right, where you're either immoral and disgusting if you've got an addiction problem or you've got a brain disease and therefore you deserve love and compassion. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you come along and say, well, actually, neither of those things is right. That actually, it's largely an adaptation to the environment, which of course has manifested to some degree in the brain, because we're not disembodied angels. Of course, things happen in our brains, but that's not—it's not primarily—it's not um, the origin is not in the problem in the brain. Um, You get some people who think what you're saying is. Oh, so if I'm not if I haven't got a brain disease, you're saying I'm evil, you know. And it's like, no, 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 that's really so you get some people who who are very wedded to that particular notion of thinking about it and a very particular notion of what um I like it. actually funny enough, just before I spoke to you guys, I had a quite heartbreaking someone on my Facebook wall who I'd posted something about compassion for addicts, someone who who was a recovering addict who'd said, you know. But I, I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but like, but I was morally flawed and selfish and disgusting when I had an addiction problem. The other day I was oh, on a panel. Yeah, yeah and the other mm-hmm. day I was on a panel with a woman, with a disgusting conservative politician in Britain and a, and a much nicer person, woman, who said, Well, when I was a heroin addict, I was evil. And I, I, that, sometimes I, I'd wow. say the yeah. thing that's been difficult is bumping up against internalized stigma among mm-hmm. the covering community. Uh, which are very familiar to me actually i'm gay i know what internalized stigma looks like i've seen it in so many Mm -hmm. people um and i've all the kind of forms of and and i said it's only been a mild form of resistance i wouldn't say you know they've not like attacked me particularly but that form of resistance is the one that i I didn't actually expect very much and that's the one that i found hardest because it just makes me really sad and you just Mm -hmm. want to say to the person i mean of course yeah, they're morally flawed. I'm morally flawed. Everyone's morally flawed. <laughs> you know, yes. mm-hmm. addicts are uniquely more or unusually morally flawed or that they're addicted because they're morally flawed. I find that really heartbreaking and problematic. And, um, which is not to say that I'm in favor of junking the whole AA model, you know, uh, uh that, that's not my view. You know, um, I think there should be a broad menu of options for people with addiction problems. One of the things on the menu should definitely be the 12 steps for th- for something as complex as human addiction there's not going to be one thing that helps everyone but that should be one of the options and some people i love have been really helped by by 12 steps programs but i do think some of the rhetoric that you know of course it was written in the 1940s and 1950s of course we know better now in some respects Mm -hmm. you know and uh, of course there's no there's no dissing of bill wilson to say that you know nothing in any complex issue would be would we want to be fixed in our understanding from the from you know the just after the second world war before and after the second world war that would be what other field of serious human endeavor would we want that physics
0: right in which nothing evolves or we don't develop any further understanding yeah well thank you so much for sharing for sharing so many interesting stories with us and i know that we could have gone for so much longer but for our listeners who want to hear more about your stories hopefully they'll pick up a copy of your book um
2: my publishers lecture me to always give the website which is okay www.chasingthescream.com and it's scream as in ah not a
0: screen as in the thing you're looking at on your computer (laughs) okay www.chasingthescream.com um so, we are unfortunately up on our time right now, but before we end, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since, um, as you know so well, educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So, if you could have our listeners do one thing right now other than visit your book's website, uh, what would you ask them to do? Uh, a call to action. Oh, God. Uh...
2: I mean, it totally depends where they are. Sorry, that's a really sh answer. On the website, (laughs) there's actually a list of organizations that I recommend people join, but, um, I just think it completely depends on where it's such a huge country. And I think the, the, um, what I would say to them is there's a lot of political issues I agree in, agree, believe in. You can really make a difference on this. This is hollow, right? This, this policy is hollow. It has completely failed on its own terms and everyone else's. And it is waiting to fall. And if enough people organise and demand it, it will fall sooner. And if it falls a week sooner, that will be thousands of people's lives we save. If it falls 10 years sooner, we will save hundreds of thousands of people's lives. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I believe in activism on global warming, on progressive taxation, on all sorts of things. But on this one, if you just want hour for hour for your time to make a difference in terms of saving people's lives this is you this will totally you you can genuinely do something you'll be proud of for the rest of your life if you get involved in this also the people are so amazing aren't they like isn't they? <laughs> <laughs> involved in a lot of progressive movements and not this is necessarily progressive in the sense that there are lots of really admirable conservatives who are also involved and libertarians who are involved in this cause as well but, but you know, it's the least contentious, it's the least dickish, it's got the least factionalism. <laughs> you know, it's just mm. a pleasure to be around the people who are part of this movement. Mm-hmm. That's not just nowhere near as consistently true of any other movement I've ever been involved in. <laughs> so, like, well,
0: that's very flattering. It's also very validating to hear that, you know, all of the hours that Sam and I put in as two people professionally involved in the movement, you know, are uh, hour for hour the most important policy change, in your opinion. So, thank you. It's the most achievable one,
2: totally. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. if, we, if we fight on this, we will win it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily true of loads of other things that I believe in, even though I think we should fight them anyway. On this one, we'll, we'll win if we keep fighting. And there are people winning all over the world. And there's so many inspiring stories of people who are winning. And it goes back to saying, just, just a final thought that, the, that you're saying, I thought of when you said earlier, you know, about how there's this pattern. With drug reform, it's always the same pattern it's unbelievably controversial until it happens and then Mm. everyone's like oh it's just better isn't it it's not like a silver bullet still Mm. problems but just it falls so quickly once people see the alternatives like you know switzerland is so right-wing my swiss relatives are insane i mean they make donald trump look like gandhi right and yet they're in favor of legalizing heroin because Mm. like they've just seen it and Mm. they're like oh okay yeah now my, now my car doesn't get stolen anymore. You know, so, yeah, anyway, that's on, that uplifting, what, what, on the comparison of Trump to Gandhi.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we can't thank you enough for all of your insight and stories and future introductions to guests. Um, I think this season of This Week in Drugs will be sponsored by Johan Hari. <laughs> um, so, again, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today. For our listeners, this has been Johan Hari, author of Chasing the Scream. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Johan.
2: Have a good night.
1: Thanks for listening to episode 58 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director, and we're funded by listeners like you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including a link to our ongoing listener survey. So that's all for episode 58, so please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song is Hard Times by Baycat Digital Music.
3: I wear hoodies when I want. I eat skittles when I want. I can breathe when I want. I can breathe, I can breathe. Have you heard of a kid with the mindset of a grown up? Was showing up, I'm living proofs so of Chuck. I thought about things that you need, and about things like why do I breathe? To see another one of me get thrown in jail or let to bleed? You see? I'm giving you food without so feast. Well, at least, I'm not one of the peeps who still find a world that's worth a penny. Have you seen these cops? They're like Wild Pack's of dogs. Everything that's brown and walk It's been kept a secret But now we see it But now it's a hard part In these hard times You have to know that it's gonna be alright Skittles when I want I can breathe when I want I can't breathe, I can breathe. I ain't playing these games, I ain't playing these games. Discrimination, hate, they all feel the same. Get some money in your pocket and the whole game change. Stop putting down, ever thought that for a change? Cause I do it, I do it, I never stop it for what? Tapping on a computer, acting hard because you can't see the real me being fake for what? I think it's crazy, swearing up and telling you a thug. Like it's so F A K E fake. Barbie can on IOA. I live on the block that never changed. I got my. Can you say the same? In these hard times, you have to know that it's gon' be alright. And even when things go
1: wrong,
3: you have to know Uh. just stay strong. Do not take me to jail. I don't know nothing. I I just want a a good life to be worth something Help me please, help me please I cannot breathe Shoot me down or bring me up It won't phase me 21st up next You know we is the best You give me life cause I'm young And I made a little wreck Get it? That's young, you reckless. I'm in my zone, so please respect it. I got hit with the baton. Why don't you get it? Boom, boom, bang, bang, making videos. Said one minute, but it was 11 yo. Oh, oh, uh, heart full of gold. Dead on the street, four hours really young Yo, real, crazy firing shots. That don't amaze me. But for 21st, setting this record. Y'all squad going crazy. Pound drum on this beat Palindrome. No guns, no clips no So much heat More dungeon than my scripts